The scriptural text for this morning is taken from Matthew 22, 15 through 22. You uh, may uh, follow in your bulletin or the Pew Bible on page 827-828. Paying taxes to Caesar. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and description is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When he heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, my heart has been uh, eager this morning to see what you will do for us. we stopped and riveted our thoughts upon the cross uh, behind me and thought about what that shows us of your willingness to do good for the world. And then we connected that fact with our own lives this morning we would be so encouraged. And so this morning, my expectations are high, not because I have a good will, but because I see in the cross of your Son your good will toward us. And so I ask you to work now for the good of your people. I ask you to work for the good of those that your son shed his own blood to purchase. I ask you to work for your glory now. We belong to you. This word is yours. And so we place ourselves at your disposal now by faith. And we pray particularly for those who are not yet in Christ this morning. We ask that you would make this the day of their salvation, that they would come to learn that they too are to render to you what belongs to you, their whole self. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the Lord's providence, I spent this past Monday uh, obeying a summons to jury duty in uh, Daytona Beach. First time in my life I've ever been summoned to jury duty. And as I waited for the inevitable hot potato, radioactive potato ejection that I knew was going to come, I mean, I'm, there's no way I'm going to get on a jury. I practice law, and I'm a Bible-thumping pastor. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. But as I waited to get the boot, I thought, I had opportunity to think about our system. And I saw these people going up to the clerk and giving their excuses. And the clerk was granting these excuses. I thought they were lame. And so I thought, you know, why don't, why don't I just go up there? What would be wrong with me going up to the clerk and saying, yes, I am a resident of Volusia County. But Jesus is my king, and my citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 
I could even quote scripture. So you should excuse me. Now, of course it wouldn't have worked. But would it have honored Jesus Christ for me to do that? And the answer is absolutely, categorically, with no ambiguity whatsoever, absolutely not. Yes, I am a resident of Volusia County, Florida, but why? Because I chose to live here? Ultimately, no. The reason I'm a resident of Volusia County, Florida, the reason I live in this, within this particular political system and under the authority of the particular political leaders that I live under the authority of, and the reason I'm embedded in the judicial system that I'm embedded in is because God in his sovereign determination, Paul says in Acts 17, 26, from one man made all men on the earth and determined the boundaries and the periods within which they would live. So, in fact, the only way for me to honor Jesus Christ was to obey that jury summons. So this morning, friends, and we're going to be thinking about how all citizenship is inherently religious and how the gospel is unavoidably political. Unavoidably. So we're going to be thinking this morning about the implications of citizenship according to the gospel. And I want to do that through the lens of three relationships that are raised uh, by implication in Jesus's uh, command, really, in verse, or in the way that he deals in this exchange. Relationship number one is Jesus's relationship to Caesar. Relationship number two is Caesar's relationship to God. And relationship number three is our relationship to Caesar. And let me say a couple of preliminary remarks. Number one, Throughout this sermon, I'm going to use Caesar as a convenient shorthand for human government, okay? You're not going to be confused by that, okay? Sometimes I'll say human government, but most of the time I'm going to say Caesar because it's a lot easier. And I know none of us think that we're actually under Caesar uh, Tiberius, okay? Does anyone? uh, Well, don't raise your hand because that would be embarrassing. But Caesar is going to be shorthand today for human government. So that's the first preliminary Uh, thing I need to say. And the second one is there is a very definite order in which we need to consider these relationships. Jesus's relationship to Caesar, Caesar's relationship to God, and our relationship to Caesar. You cannot understand your relationship to Caesar unless you first understand Jesus's relationship to Caesar and Caesar's relationship to God. You cannot jump to number three until numbers one and two are clear. So let's think first about Jesus's relationship to Caesar. And there are a couple of uh, ways, uh, a couple of headings I want to think about this under. There are two ways to divide this up uh, from our passage. The first is Jesus' command, and the second is Jesus' obedience. Jesus' command. Let's think first about that. How Jesus' command reveals how he understands his relationship to Caesar. You know, the Pharisees and the Herodians are not natural allies. This passage illustrates that, that expression that you use, that I often use. Right? Anybody playing the Yankees is my favorite team. Okay, so my enemy's enemy is my friend. Did you, did you track me? Okay. So here, the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees are not natural allies. The Pharisees, and yet they team up because, they, because they, they're both opposing Jesus. So the Pharisees represent re, essentially religious conservatives who are opposed to Roman rule, and the Herodians are essentially religious liberals who collaborate with Roman rule. And you would think that that would be oil and water and they would never get together, except when it comes to opposing Jesus and his rising popularity during Passover week at a time and at a pitch that is threatening to both of them. And so they decide, like talk show hosts who are drunk on their own cleverness, to try to trap him with a question They try first to butter him up, but he's unbutterable. They try to flatter him. And then they lay the trap in verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful 
to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Now, obviously, Caesar thinks it's lawful for them to pay taxes to Caesar, so that's not the issue. The issue is whether it's lawful under God's law for the Jews to pay these taxes to Caesar. Can you, in other words, be faithful to God and pay this tax to Caesar? Now, this is a very controversial tax that they're talking about. They're talking about one particular tax. It was called the poll tax or the head tax. And every non-Roman citizen who was an adult, male and female, throughout the entire empire, was levied this tax and had to pay it every single year. So what it essentially was, in effect, was a tribute that the people whom Rome had conquered had to pay every year to Rome to underwrite the empire, to underwrite their conquerors. This is not a good tax. This is not, this is not uh, something that would have been viewed favorably. And notice this as well. This is, by definition, what we call today a wedge issue. You know that term? You ask somebody what they think about a particular issue, and they only have two choices, and no matter which way they go, they're going to end up alienating a substantial constituency. It's a wedge issue. And they don't really care, the, Philippi, excuse me, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they don't really care about his answer. They know that either way he goes, he's going to undermine his relationship with some constituency. If he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, to pay the poll tax to Caesar, well, then the Pharisees are going to use it against him among the religious conservatives. If he says, no, it's not lawful to pay the tax, then the Herodians are going to use it against him with the Romans. So they're either trying to get him to say something that's blasphemous, or something that's seditious. Now, before we go on to look at Jesus' answer, I want you to notice, and this is very important because Jesus' answer is going to meet both of these head on, but I want you to notice that there are two assumptions embedded in their question to Jesus. Very important. One of them, it's hard to see in the English. And it's this. The first one is this. What they literally ask is this. Is it right to give tax to Caesar? Now that's interesting. Because the very way the question is framed seems to imply that they don't think that Caesar has any right to tax. So it's very important to see that especially in light of how Jesus is going to answer it. That's the first assumption in their question. The second assumption in their question is they frame it as an either-or proposition, right? You're either going to be loyal to Caesar or you're going to be loyal to God. They don't see any overlap in the Venn diagrams. Now, look at how Jesus answers it. He, doesn't res- he responds to their either-or question with a both-and answer. Not Caesar or God, but Caesar and God. You've got to back up a bit if you want to understand. Look at verse 21. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I don't know about you, but that already makes me uncomfortable. Because that means in order for me to obey this command, I've got a lot of work to do, don't I? I want Jesus, I, I typically live in this way. Just tell me what to do. I mean, I would much rather live that way most of the time. Just give me a list and I'll work down it. But when you give me something like this, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. You know what I have to do? The, th- the reason that is so hard for me, because that means I've got I've to use my mind. That means I have to spend time thinking through what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. That means I've got my love for God is going to require me to yield my mind 
to him and to evaluate my life. And more even than that, it may lead me to places that make me uncomfortable. And what Jesus does is he says, okay, you want to know whether it's lawful to pay the tax? Well, show me the coin for the tax. That's a very interesting coin because on the front of it, it would have been marked with the image of Emperor Tiberius, who was the son of, the, of Emperor Augustus, who had called for the census in Luke chapter 2. This is his son now. And the image of Tiberius would have been on the coin, and on the front, it would have been inscribed as follows. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, it would have said, Pontiff Maxim. In other words, high priest. And that coin is handed to Jesus. Obviously, on its face, right, not accurate theology, blasphemous toward God, right? And with that coin and its claims about that pagan emperor before him, this is what Jesus says. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Now, that is very unsettling. We're going to dig down deeper on the implications of this later in the message. But at this point, let me just highlight three. So that's what we've got. That's the data. And so right now, before we go any further, let me just highlight three uh, implications of what Jesus says in verse 21. Okay? Number one. There are things that belong rightfully and exclusively to God. That's what Jesus is saying at a minimum here, friends. There are things that belong exclusively to God. Like what, you say? Well, are you a, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Are you a human being? Yes, you are. And guess what? As a human being... You bear another's image, don't you? God put that image of himself upon you. You belong rightfully and exclusively to the living God. You bear his image, my friend. So your whole life belongs to him. You know, when we were, uh, now, now it seems crazy, I was thinking about this, I, I'm actually going to start a, f- a sentence with this phrase, when we were raising our kids. It makes me sad to say that, I'm really happy. But when they were school age and they would go to school, we taught them, as soon as they started going to school, very young age, we had a little dialogue, and I would always say to them before they left the house for the day, Luke, Francis, who are you? Madeline Francis, who are you? Lydia Francis, who are you? And this is, what my, this is what we taught our kids to say. I am a child of the high king of heaven, and I bear his image to the world. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you bear the image of God, not because you painted it on yourself, but because that's what it means to be human. And you've been living your whole life bearing the image of God. And your your very humanity is evidence of God's total claim over every part of your life. And it's a rightful claim. And so you need to hear that through Jesus Christ, God is saying to you, render to me what is mine, which is your entire life. So the first implication of what Jesus says is that there are things that belong rightfully and exclusively to God. And the second implication is that there are things that belong rightfully to Caesar. Ooh! Jesus says that there are things that are Caesar's, a fact that he, that's emphasized by the verb that he uses, render. Now that's interesting 
Because remember I told you that one of their assumptions in their question was, if you, if you take their question literally, they're saying, is it, is it right to give tax to Caesar? And Jesus' answer isn't a yes or a no. His answer is, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he uses a totally different verb, and the verb means pay what is owing. In other words, there's an obligation. It's not a gift. Caesar is, the, the citizens are rightfully obligated in some sense that Jesus is describing to Caesar, to human government. Now, the extent, that means Caesar has legitimate rights over citizens, according to Jesus. Legitimate rights. Now, the extent of those rights. The limits of those rights, the parameters of those rights, is a vital question. It's a very complex question, but it's another question. And we'll get to it later this morning. But at least some, here, see this, at least some of Caesar's things will overlap with and not transgress God's things. Do you see that? So Jesus is saying that it is possible for some of Caesar's things to overlap with some of God's things, the things that belong rightfully to God. Thirdly, notice and don't miss that he says this about Caesar. He doesn't say this about Thomas Jefferson. He doesn't say it about the United States government. He doesn't say about the United States Constitution or the Declaration of Independence or the Articles of Confederation. He doesn't say it about the United States Supreme Court. He doesn't say it about Congress. He says it about Caesar and the pagan totalitarian empire that Caesar was the head of. He doesn't say it about a democracy. He doesn't say it about a republic. He says it about a brutal pagan empire. This, and he says it about a tax, a tax that helped to underwrite that empire, a tax that, that helped to pay the soldiers who in a matter of just a few days would be spitting on him, would be slapping him, would be mocking him, and would be scourging him. He says this about a tax that helped to underwrite the the. the the salary, if you will, of Pontius Pilate, who would, in a matter of a few days, condemn him to death. Now, what I want you to see at this point by pointing those things out, friends, is that this is not as simple as it might seem at first blush. And so we all need to be humbled under what Jesus is saying here. We have political instincts. They have not always been trained by God as much as they should have been. They are so often, and we'll get to this later, more often trained uh, into us through the media. But God needs to be our civics teacher. And what Jesus sets before us here is complex. Because he is describing his relationship with human government and by extension the relationship of his people with human government in terms that cannot easily be reduced to the simplistic kind of dialogue that prevails in, in popular culture. And Jesus' command is going to thrust us very uncomfortably into all kinds of ambiguities and difficult situations. They will often cut against the grain of our own preferences. They will often subject us, and I think this is increasingly true in our culture for evangelicals and people who are committed to the Bible. I don't know what you think about the Redskins brouhaha, but friends, you need to see in that a coming cloud for evangelicals that has nothing to do with football. And when we stand into, a, we, we're going to have to figure out how we relate to Caesar as evangelicals when the culture has taken a turn away from what we have enjoyed through no merit of our own, which is a whole lot of political sway in this culture. And the culture has turned from that. And so we're going to have to think about this. And the only way to navigate through this is to be in prayerful, prayerfully dependent upon God 
the only way to navigate through it is going to require much careful study to understand God's word, what, what, what God thinks belongs to him and what he regards as belonging to Caesar. There's going to have to be a readiness to suffer by faith through ambiguities and tensions in which we risk making mistakes by faith and even incurring social and judicial hostility from our culture. So that's Jesus' command. What about his obedience? That too demonstrates how he thinks about his relationship to Caesar. What do I, what do I mean by Jesus' obedience? Well, friends, here's what I mean. If you want to understand Jesus' relationship to human government, we have to think even further about his command in verse 21 because before, before Jesus issues that command in verse 21 to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, before he issues that command to us, he obeys it for us. He obeys it for us. He does it first in both his birth and in his death, my friends. You have to see that Jesus renders himself to Caesar. Let me show it to you first from Luke chapter 2. If you turn with me, it's on page 857 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I know it's not Advent, and I know this is a Christmas passage. But I want you to think about, with me about the, the significance of this in terms of uh, what we're seeing in Matthew 22. You know this passage. We read it on every Christmas Eve. We love this passage. It's an amazing passage. Now, look at this. This is, uh, this is Tiberius's father. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So that's just this picture of this this census, that it, this command, this decree that issues from Rome, and it extends to and obligates people who live in Palestine under Roman rule, including specifically now, verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, I want you to think about this. Who was that child? The Lord of glory. Jesus Christ. Friends, the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the reason the prophecy of Micah 5.2 was fulfilled, was because the Lord of glory rendered himself to Caesar from within Mary's womb. He did not command that an angel be sent to Joseph to say, Joseph, don't leave Nazareth. Because the baby Mary carries is the Lord of glory, and he is above and over all jurisdiction of earthly rulers. No, he went, carried through a dangerous journey in obedience to Caesar's decree, the decreer himself placing himself under the decree of an earthly ruler. And friends, if he had not done that, if he had not rendered himself to Caesar, he would not have been qualified to save his people from their sins because he had to be the one who would take up the throne of David. If Jesus doesn't render himself to Caesar from the womb, there is no gospel. But he didn't just do it at his birth. He did it uh, at his death. Turn with me to John 19, which is on page um, 905 in your pew Bible. John 19. So... uh, the night before he's crucified, Jesus is in, in Pilate, Pilate's custody. And he and Pilate have a long conversation. And Pilate is getting, you know the story, Pilate is getting exasperated at Jesus because he won't talk. And Pilate says this at verse 10, 
says this. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's saying, I have life and death authority over you. You need to talk to me. Now look at Jesus' answer. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now you see what's happening? At the conclusion of a sinless life, a ministry of perfect faithfulness to God, in which he had done nothing but kindness and good to everyone he'd come in contact with, now he finds himself in a kangaroo court presided over by pagan occupiers where there is trumped up evidence and false accusations being leveled against him. If there was ever a place to say, you have no legitimate authority over me, this would be the time. And he does not say that. He says exactly the opposite. Pilate is Caesar's representative, and Jesus renders himself to Caesar. He doesn't fight against Caesar here, my friends. You've got to see this. And in fact, what he says is so profound. When Jesus looks at Pilate and looks at Pilate sitting on his judgment seat, he sees his father's judgment seat. He sees in Pilate's authority, his father's authority. He does not dispute that Pilate has life and death authority over him. He does not dispute that Pilate has the authority to crucify him. What he says is the only reason you have that authority is because my father gave it to you. You have authority to crucify me. I have authority to be crucified. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is the charge I received from my Father. I am free to render myself to you for the glory of God and for the salvation of my people. Now, friends, unless we see this, we will tend, unless we see that our king rendered himself to Caesar in the midst of injustice, in the midst of great suffering, we're going to be tempted to think about our relationship to government in terms of our rights. In other words, we're going to be tempted only to think about our relationship to Caesar in terms of what our culture teaches us. But Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, submitted and rendered himself to the decisive life and death authority that was wielded by Pilate. Jesus fully submitted to it. And so at a minimum, right, we need to be stopped in our tracks. We need to be humbled by that. And we need to recognize that perhaps some of the boxes that we draw around what we think of as our obligations to Caesar, perhaps we draw them far too narrowly. So that's Jesus' relationship to Caesar. How about Caesar's relationship to God? Now, if all you had was was Jesus' command in verse 21, you might be tempted to think, okay, well, Jesus is saying, let's go back to Matthew 22. You might be tempted to say, okay, well, Jesus says, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So that means that what Jesus is teaching is that there are two totally separate realms and they never overlap. And so our job in life is just to kind of figure out where that dividing line is. And, you know, God's just kind of left all these things to Caesar. And then there are the things that he really cares about, like God really cares about going to church on Sunday. And the rest of my life, my job, the way I deal with my family, all that stuff, that's Caesar's stuff, Right? Well, that's not how Jesus is teaching us here. Nothing could be further from the truth because there is nothing that is Caesar's. There's nothing, not a single thing of human governments that isn't originally and ultimately and completely God's to begin with. So I want to think about that with you under two under two points. 
uh, from the scriptures. The first is that we learn when we look at how scripture teaches us about human government, we learn that Caesar is very small and we learn that Caesar is very important. First, that Caesar is very small before God. Look, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. There are a lot of places we could go, friends, but Isaiah 40 um, is, the, is the place that I think is most helpful. It's most helpful to me. If you go to Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 25, you know, when you get into, when you get into Isaiah 40, you are, you're taking a high, you're going to need, if you find yourself needing oxygen, it's because you have been set loose in the Himalayas of the Bible, okay? And so Isaiah 40 is just absolutely breathtaking, and there are so many things that are beneficial to us uh, in terms of understanding who God is in this chapter. But let's just zero in on verses 21 and t- through 25 for our present purposes. And this is God speaking, okay? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? In other words, everyone understands this. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. You know what those verses are? That is God giving us a civics lesson. That is, that is God describing what human government looks like from his perspective. You know, we look up to human government, but God looks down. And do you see what he's saying here about the princes of the earth, the mightiest leaders of the earth, and the structures through which they exert their power? The princes and all of their empires, the leaders and all of their realms all their political influence, all their ability to exert control over other people's lives, it all belongs to God. He's in charge of it all. He's not the spectator of them. He's the one who plants them. He's the one who sows them. He's the one who deter- he creates them and he determines their duration. The reason anyone is ever elected president of the United States is not ultimately because of what the Electoral College decides or because of how certain counties in Ohio voted. Oh my goodness, if that's what you thought the fate of our nation rested on, wouldn't you just go and hide under a rock? Really? The only reason anyone is ever elected president, the only reason anyone is ever in any authority in the earth is because God says you will be in authority. And the only reason anyone loses their office is because God blows on them. Caesar is very small. Human government is not ultimate. God is ultimate. There is nothing that is Caesar's that isn't originally, completely, and ultimately God's, and there is much that belongs to God that will never and does never uh, and can never ever belong to Caesar. All of Caesar's authority is at God's pleasure. It is derived from and dependent upon him, which is precisely why Caesar, even though he is very small, is very important See, the wrong conclusion would be that because Caesar is small, Caesar doesn't matter. That is not what the Bible teaches. Caesar, even though he is small, is very important. And that's the second prong I want to look at with you. Romans 13. If you'll turn with me, Romans 13, which is on page 948 in your pew Bible. Verses 1 through 7. Now, again, it's very important to see the context or to remember the context in which Paul is explaining these things. He's 
doing this from within the midst of the Roman Empire. And this is what he says. I mean, and let's be clear about this. Caesar is very important, but not because his importance is his own, not because Caesar is sovereign, but because, as Paul's going to show us, he's the servant of the sovereign one. So look at, look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. It sounds like Paul's been reading Isaiah 40. Now think about that. There is no authority except from God. What a vision of God's sovereignty. There is no authority except from God. So, you know, friends, no matter where we're going to find ourselves in life, we are not ever going to be in a zone where we can say, oh, this is the exception to the sovereign providence of God. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now this is the shocker. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now think about that. All authority in the universe, because even the authority wielded by a pagan empire Because all the authority in the universe originates with God and belongs ultimately to God, Christians must, verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities. And insofar as our resistance, therefore, against the government does not arise because the government is requiring us to disobey God, then our resistance against that governing authority is treated by God as resistance against him. That's because Caesar is God's servant for our good, the servant of God, and because the governing authorities are ministers of God, we are called and obligated before God to respect and honor them. Look at how it ends. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed them. Very interesting. The verb that Paul uses for pay there is exactly the same verb that Jesus uses in verse 21, render. In other words, there's an obligation. It's a verb that assumes there's an existing legitimate obligation that needs to be fulfilled. It's not a gift. It is not a gift for a Christian to respect a leader. It is a duty before God. Pay to all. What is owed them? Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Friends, God makes us Caesar's debtors. Now, there are a lot of wonderful things about our culture that I love and I'm so grateful for. But our culture does not teach us how to do that. And and the problem is, if you're embedded in American culture with an American mindset and all of the philosophical assumptions that we are the, the undeserving heirs of, like there's some kind of social contract between the citizens and the government in which we really are the sovereign and the government is our servant. If that's how we think, and, that, and by the way, if you take, you take high school civics, you're going to rightly learn that that's the heritage of our country. But you know what? You know what our country is and all of its philosophical assumptions? They're just like a little, it's just, it's just in, the, in the span of history, it's just this little plant. It's just little And what God says in Isaiah 40 predates it. 
What God does in Genesis 1 predates it. And so we have to go further back than John Locke. And if we're unwilling to do that, we're being disobedient to God. So we need to think about our relationship to Caesar. And we could do an entire mini-series on this, and I thought about it. And it would be beneficial. And friends, we're going to need to do it in the coming years. You just wait. Um, I fully expect within the next year for the Supreme Court to hold that same-sex marriage is a constitutionally protected right. And that is going to be something with such vast implications because the next step, the next step uh, in the legal strategy would be then to punish everyone who disagrees with that and speaks up against it as essentially being on the same level as segregationists. And when that happens, then all kinds of benefits that we enjoy right now, like a charitable deduction, 501c3 status, those things become all of a sudden suspect. Because you know the KKK doesn't get a 501c3 deduction. And there will be all kinds of challenges to our liberty. Our liberty before God in the gospel. And so we're going to need to think very carefully about these things. But this morning, I just want to, I just want to focus in on three particular areas. Three aspects of our relationship to Caesar that I think are very important. And these do not exhaust all the implications. But by God's grace, they'll be a beginning. The first is our listening or our learning. The second is our speech. And the third is our loyalty. So first, our listening or our learning. And what I mean here, and I've already alluded to it, and the question that each of us has to face we come to this area of how we relate to human government, is who is our primary... I want you to think about this in your life, specifically. Who is your primary civics teacher? Who is teaching you? Whose tutelage in the area of civics and current events and leaders in our culture, whose tutelage are you sitting primarily under? The media's? or God's? Who influences the way you think, the way your heart moves, the hopes it seeks after, the hopes it invests in, the diagnoses it adopts, the remedies it agrees with? Who is teaching you those things primarily? The media or God? Friends, the gospel is an equal opportunity deconstructor of both the left and the right. Jesus is not a Democrat, and he is not a Republican. There is way too much at stake for him to limit himself to the vision of either side of the political spectrum. The media teach us all the time. And, and friends, I am not just thinking of media on the right. I'm also thinking about media on the left. The media can't avoid doing this. This is what it does. And we just, we just will, we, we open the classroom, right, on the radio. We open the classroom when we turn our television on. And we're being instructed. Okay, We're being taught. We're being shaped. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't let your mind be squeezed into the mold of the world, either from the left or the right. Friends, the media teach us all the time about things that really matter. I mean, they're talking about things that really matter. They're, they're talking. I don't care whether it's Fox News or MSNBC. They're talking always about the issue of diagnosis. What's wrong with man? What's, what's fundamentally wrong with man? They're always talking about that. But they never go deep enough, either on the right or on the left. Well, I got that backwards. Either on the left or on the right. Well, it was right for you guys. It was wrong for me. I'm going to stop doing that. 
None of them go deep enough because none of them ever really deal with the true nature. Our fundamental problem is not one of economic opportunity. It's not one of health care. Our fundamental problem is that we're estranged from God. We've alienated ourselves from Him. And the diagnosis in the media is too shallow. And therefore, the remedies that they prescribe are naive. Whether you're on the left and you think the remedy is more government, or you're on the right and you think the remedy is less government, free market, hey, I got news for you, left and right people. Guess what? You got the same problem in both realms because government is full of people who are broken and flawed and in rebellion against God, so you can't trust government to them, and the market is made up of people who are just as depraved, and so you can't look at the market and say, oh, that's the holy sanctifier. And if you doubt that, read Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, which I read in May. That'll make your eyes roll into the back of your head. And the hope that they set before us is way too low. Way too low, my friends. We have a hope in Christ. We have a hope that's higher than Caesar, infinitely higher than Caesar. And we need to seek that. We need to seek God's evaluation of man's condition, God's remedy for man's condition, and let God's hope be the hope that sets us free. So our learning needs to be more from God than from the media. Secondly, our speech. How do we speak about our leaders? Now, I'm going to urge you to pray for them, just as Paul commands us in 1 Timothy 2, and I'm going to, just in the interest of time, encourage you to go to 1 Timothy 2 on your own, later this afternoon, verses 1 through 4. But we need to be praying for them whether or not we agree with their political decisions because God wants all men to be saved. God's approach to our leaders, whether they're just or unjust, is he wants them to be saved. And it's good and right and pleasing to Jesus for us to intercede for people we don't agree with. So there's speech to God for our leaders, but then there's the more troublesome issue of our speech about them. And I think this is an especially difficult area. It's one in which most of us, and I put myself at the front of this line, continue to struggle, and where we are far too ready to excuse and justify ourselves. And this is not a little issue, because when we do this, and when we speak badly about our leaders, when we deride them and mock them, when we refuse to honor them and pay them what they're owed, which is respect, uh, we dishonor God and we compromise our witness. Our family, we have a picture of President Obama and his family in our refrigerator. And the reason we do is because our father made him our president. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Our father made Barack Obama our president. And we, as a family, in Christ, owe him honor. We owe him respect. We are subject to him as a governing authority that God has put in place. That does not mean I countenance things that leaders do that are contrary to God's will. Friends, I want you to imagine that today... Let's imagine President Obama is on Air Force One and somebody uh, fires a missile at Air Force One and Air Force One crashes and the president is killed. I want you to imagine that. Now, your reaction is not going to be one of joy. You're going to be saddened and you're going to be provoked. Why? Because he's the president of the United States. And you know that an attack upon the President of the United States, regardless of who's in the Oval Office, is an attack upon the presidency. And an attack upon the presidency is an attack upon our nation. And an attack upon our nation is an attack upon every single citizen of our nation, including you. That's how you would respond. I'm fully confident of that. And yet, we are far too willing 
and I've noticed this, this is far more than when President Bush was in office. We are far too willing to feel ourselves free to attack the president with our speech. In effect, assassinating him with disrespect and dishonor. And we give our ears to people who do it, even if we don't do it. And we enjoy the clever way that they do it. We do it with verbal missiles, but in Jesus' evaluation, those missiles are just as murderous. Remember what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, my friends. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Don't play with things that Jesus Christ, your Savior, calls murder. We are often far more like John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald than we care to admit. So that's our speech. And then finally, our loyalty. Our loyalty to Caesar has limits. Our loyalty to God has none. We're called by our Lord Jesus to render ourselves to Caesar only in such ways and on such terms as though we were rendering ourselves to God, always remembering that the day is coming when Caesar himself will have to render himself to the judge of all. And this is always going to cost us more than we imagine. I believe that. This is always going to cost us more than we have, and it will certainly, certainly never be more than God is able and willing to supply for us. Sometimes, as we've thought about already, this is going to thrust us into ambiguities and tensions uh, socially that are extremely uncomfortable. Think about that coin and everything that was on it that Jesus didn't say, don't have anything to do with that. Quite the opposite. He said, use it. Think about how difficult it is to pray for people and to love people with whom you disagree. That's going to be hard. And by the way, you know, if President Obama is not your favorite president, somebody else who you think now is going to be your favorite president is going to be president, guess what? They're not going to bring the kingdom either. And they're going to do a lot of unrighteous stuff too. Sometimes this is going to thrust us into great suffering. And, and that's going to happen when Caesar seeks to constrain us to obey him in a way that disobeys God. And here we're going to have to be like Daniel and the Hebrew midwives. And we're going to have to oppose Caesar for the glory of God. But how to know when and where to draw that line. What we want is for God to give us just this simple list of things. But God never deals with us that way. Because what God wants to do is he doesn't want robots who are living according to a Fortran card with holes punched in it that we just apply automatically. What God is growing is children who are dependent upon him. God isn't interested in emancipating us away from him, but true emancipation in the gospel is greater dependence on him. And if you're going to live this out, if I'm going to live this out, if we're, going to, if we're going to be able to discern what it means to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, then we are going to have to stay awfully close to God, aren't we? We're going to have to abide so closely in him. He is going to have to be our civics teacher. We're going to have to be prayerfully dependent upon him. We're going to have to be careful students of his word. The only way that you can ever see where this line is between, between obeying Caesar to the glory of God and disobeying Caesar to the glory of God, the only people, there's only one category of person who is ever going to be able to see where that line is, and that is the category of living sacrifices. You've got to be somebody who not when you get into a pinch but every single day of your life, you wake up amazed that you are awash in the mercy of God. And in response to that mercy of God in Christ, you present yourself to God as a living sacrifice who has been cleansed by the one who gave himself as the dying sacrifice for you. 
who went all the way to the cross, rendering himself to Caesar for your sake and for the glory of God. He held nothing back of himself so that he might redeem us. So friends, I call you, I call myself to abide in him, the one who drew no lines. He gave Caesar honor, but he gave his awe and his heart to God, which is what he calls us to do as well. Let's pray. Father, now we need your counsel. We need your instruction. We need your correction. We need your training in righteousness. We need a clear vision of your son so that we might follow him in rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to you the things that are yours. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.